Welcome to Vineyard Hopkinton. As we follow Jesus together, we experience the Holy Spirit, create a multicultural community, and pursue kingdom of God justice. Uh, And of course, happy Father's Day, dads. Happy Father's Day. Elbow the dad around you. Say, good job, guys. Good job. Well done. Uh, You know, it's Father's Day. You know, this, I didn't buy this for myself. Should, Should clarify. Come on, Sinai, tell them that you bought it, not me. Come on, You're leaving me stranded. I didn't buy this for myself, but you know. Uh, <laughs> but it's Father's Day and it's Juneteenth, which means it's a double holiday weekend, which means we get to party twice as hard. I love double holiday weekends. That's really fun, right? Twice the party, twice the ice cream. Marcos brought $20 for ice cream, he said, so he's getting 10 of them. You know, it's going to be a really good time. Uh, You know, I think both of the holidays this weekend celebrate strength. You know, strong dads, stereotype or not, you know, strong dads who pick us up, who love on us, who who care for us in really practical ways. Uh, And then also, you know, strong people who persevered in the face of racism and of oppression, uh, through false promises and years of not receiving the freedom that they were, uh, they had been told that they were going to be given. Uh, strong people who live strong lives. That's what this weekend's about. So I started thinking, what does a strong person look like? What's it mean to be strong as uh, as a person? Andy Crouch wrote this book called Strong and Weak. You know, so he talks about this a little bit. So I thought we'd start off by listening to his ideas. And then I'll talk a little bit more. So watch this. There's this amazing uh, moment when Paul is writing the Corinthians uh, who want him to be this strong, impressive leader. And he describes having been saddled with what he calls a thorn in his flesh. We don't even know exactly what he means. And he prayed over and over that this this debilitating, in some sense debilitating, perhaps physical uh, thing, would be taken away from him. And he says, God did not answer that prayer. Instead, God spoke to him and said, my power is made perfect in weakness. And he says, when I am weak in Christ, then I'm strong. And in that, uh, compressed into that moment when Paul is trying to reframe for the Corinthians what real life is, what real leadership is, uh, in that is the paradox of flourishing. That there's something about strength and weakness together Paul doesn't say uh, you shouldn't care about being strong. He just says, when I'm weak, then I am strong. How do those two things go together? And as I have tried to unpack this, and as I've thought about the broader topics of power and human flourishing, the the two words I ended up with that I use in the book are authority and vulnerability. Um, That strength corresponds to authority, the capacity for meaningful action in the world. And weakness corresponds to vulnerability, the exposure to meaningful risk in the world. So if you have vulnerability without authority, that is suffering. That's poverty. That's exposure to risk without the ability to change your circumstances. You can have neither vulnerability or authority. That is, well, that's being in your parents' basement watching TV. It's, it's protected, it's safety, it's withdrawal from the world. And then you can have authority without vulnerability. That's a kind of power. That's raw power. That's the ability to control. That's the promise of every idol. It's what every system of injustice uh, perpetuates, that some people have authority without vulnerability. Uh, And none of these is what we're we're meant for. 
We're not ultimately meant for poverty and suffering. We're not meant for withdrawal and safety. We're definitely not meant for idolatry and injustice. We're meant for authority and vulnerability together, which is flourishing. Uh, so authority and vulnerability, they intersect and create these four kind of quadrants. So Tracy, if you get perfect, thank you. Uh, and so I'm, you know, honesty time. I'm going to ask you a lot of honest questions about yourself. I'm not going to make you raise your hands though. So that's good this morning. But when you look at this, do you see yourself at certain times in one of these various uh, quadrants. Of course, we all want to be up and to the right, right? That's where we all want to go. But, you know, for me, I look at that and I see down and to the right. And I think of when I'm in a, in a room with people who I don't know, I tend to withdraw. I disappear. I want to fade into the background. That's where I can go in those moments. And likewise, when I'm stressed and overly tired, which this is a little painful to admit to a room full of people, but I can go up into uh, the left to the exploiting, self-seeking one uh, when I'm in that sort of a headspace. I'm sure that there's some of us who can see ourselves in the suffering, self-pity one. And we all want to go towards that secure, flourishing quadrant that's up there uh, where we are flourishing and living life the way that it's meant to be lived as followers of Jesus. And the purpose of this, as he said, is to help us to learn how to grow, not to make us feel bad. So with this in mind, let me, let me ask again, like what makes someone strong as we think of it through that grid? Well, he mentioned 2 Corinthians 12, where it says, each time he said, my grace is all that you need. My power works best in weakness. So now I am glad to boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ can work through me. That's why I take pleasure in my weaknesses and in the insults, hardships, persecutions, and troubles that I suffer for Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. What makes us strong? What's the strength given to us by Jesus? That's the first acknowledgement, right? It's not of ourselves. We need it when we're weak, when we're not in places of strength. And Paul's defining it here as a strength of soul. It's a strength that gives us the ability to deal with hard things with courage and patience, with grace and risk. That's the sort of strength that Paul's pointing us to in these verses. And this morning, I want to talk about how we can gain that sort of strength how we can live lives that are strong in that way. And I want to do it through looking at the life of somebody who is known for their strength, but who I would say is not a hero, not somebody who we should live our lives like, much more of an anti-hero, uh, but gives us a really good framework to be able to understand what strength looks like, hopefully in healthy ways if we live a little bit differently. And that's through the eyes of Samson. Samson's a man that was all power, no vulnerability, right? Like all strength, manly man who got what he wanted, who made everybody listen to him, who did what he wanted uh, and never admitted anything that was going on in his life. Did not live a particularly fruitful life because of that reality. And so I want to look at Samson's life because in this cautionary tale, I think we're given an invitation to look at how we should live, how we can live in better ways. And I just want to say, I go into uh, this morning talking about this, not as an expert, but as somebody who's on a journey 
And I hope that this morning that you hear that, that I'm saying, hey, come and let's follow Jesus together, not let me show you the 10 ways to become like this. We're all on this journey. We're all being formed more and more like Jesus, uh, and we're doing it together. So let's walk the path that Jesus has for us this morning as a church. Let's pray, and then we're going to jump into the book of Judges. Jesus, I just thank you for your presence that's here with us this Father's Day, this weekend. God, I thank you uh, for good fathers, for those of us who have had great examples of dads. I thank you for the good dads in this room. I pray for people who have had uh, examples of not good fathers. Pray for continued healing from that. And I pray for you to be our Heavenly Father, you to be the source of love and strength, and grace, and all the things that we need. I pray this morning that you will give us humility to say, how in my weakness can you come and make me strong, Jesus? Come and speak to us today. We give you this space. We're grateful for you. We love you. And we ask for your kingdom to come right here and right now. In Jesus' name. Okay, open up your Bibles to Judges chapter 13. That's, uh, I think, the seventh book in the Bible, so it's towards the beginning if you're looking for it. Um, There's Bibles in the back if you want one in Spanish, Portuguese, and English. Uh, And have it open so you can fact check me, because I'm not going to read all the verses of four chapters. You're welcome. That's my Father's Day gift to you, because we would be here for a very long time if I read the entire story. Very long. Uh, But I want to start in Judges 13, verse 2. It says that Manoah's wife was unable to become pregnant, and they had no children. The angel of the Lord appeared to her and said, Even though you have been unable to have children, you will soon become pregnant and give birth to a son. He continues and he says, Samson, I don't remember if he names him exactly in that spot or not, but your son is going to rescue Israel from the Philistines. He's going to rescue them from the oppressors that they are currently dealing with in that time in their history. And so Manoah's wife is very excited. She goes to talk to her husband. She's telling him all about what's happened and what the angel said. When surprise of surprises, the angel shows up again. And he tells both of them together the same thing one more time just to make sure that they knew what it was that God's plan was for their son who was going to be born. And both times the angel says that Samson needs to be dedicated to God, set apart to God's calling as a Nazarite. This is a vow that somebody would take uh, that means that they're setting their whole, well, at least that part of their life, that time period, to the will and the calling of God as he was calling them to. And so let me read from Numbers 6 what this idea of a Nazarite vow is. It says this in Numbers 6. Then the Lord said to Moses, if any of the people, either men or women, take the special vow of a Nazarite, setting themselves apart to the Lord in a special way, they must give up wine and other alcoholic drinks. They must not use vinegar made from wine or other alcoholic drinks. They must not drink fresh grape juice. They must not eat grapes or raisins. They're not allowed to eat or drink anything that comes from the grapevine, not even grape skins or seeds. I have no idea why grapes matter so much, but that's what it says. They must never cut their hair throughout the time of their vow, for they are holy and set apart to the Lord. 
They must not go near a dead body during the entire period of their vow to the Lord. This requirement applies as long as they are set apart to the Lord. As you could guess, not a lot of people signed up for this. It was not the most popular choice that you could take uh, in the list of ways to follow God. Uh, but it, it, in fact, the only, I could only think of two people who took this vow. And if you throw the Jesus card at me, okay, okay. But two people other than Jesus who took this vow. And if you can come up with a third, I'll buy you coffee. It's good job. Uh, and that's Samson and John the Baptist. The only two examples I can think of from the Bible that became Nazarites that took this vow. For both of them, it was for life. Most of the time, it was not for life. And it says that in Numbers, that it's not guaranteed to be something that takes up the rest of your life. It's for a time period. But Nazarites were supposed to be holy. They're supposed to live differently. They're supposed to be people that you want to look up to, you know, that you're like, oh, I want to live like them. They're so, they're so holy. They live in such a different way than I do, and it's a really good thing. Samson? He is none of those things. Dude did not live this out particularly well. He was not a holy man. Let me walk us through some of this. Uh, so if we look in Judges 14, verse 1, it says, One day when Samson was in Timnah, one of the Philistine women caught his eye. When he returned home, he told his father and mother, A young Philistine woman in Timnah caught my eye, and I want to marry her. Get her for me. It's what it said. I didn't make the language. It's what it is. Uh, his father and mother objected. Isn't there even one woman in your own tribe or among all the Israelites that you can marry? Why must you go to the pagan Philistines to find a wife? But Samson told his father, get her for me. She looks good to me. Again, I didn't write it. This is what he said, not me. Uh, but this shows like there's some like serious uh, relational difficulties between uh, the parents and the son, if you want to dig into that. There's some stuff right there that they needed to work through that they didn't. Because um, they give in. They say, okay, we'll do what you want, Samson. So we're told then that they're on the road. They're going to Timnah to meet uh, this woman that he wants to marry to find out uh, if this marriage is compatible. And they're on the way. And somehow they get separated, which isn't really clarified how. But it says that Samson is close to a vineyard, which for a dude that can't eat grape skins, being close to a vineyard seems a little bit fishy to me. But okay, so he's close to a vineyard when he's walking down to Timnah and he gets attacked by a lion. It jumps out, it jumps on him and he grabs it with his bare hands and he kills it with his bare hands. Like, insane. If I killed a lion with my bare hands, I'm not saying I'm proud of it, but I'm definitely telling everybody. Like, you know, like that is something that is worth sharing with other people because who's ever heard of this happening? So he takes it, he throws it off, you know, throws the, the carcass into the bushes, brushes off and walks on his way. And we're told very clearly that he did not tell his parents the lion. So fast forward couple weeks later he's walking back from Timnah from seeing this new fiance that he has and as he's walking back he decides to go close to the vineyard uh, again which dude you're you, we, we can read between the lines at this point we know what's happening when he's close to the vineyard at that point point. Um, and he decides to stop by and see if this lion carcass 
he sees that some bees have, and I don't, anyway, that's a biology thing that I don't want to kind of dig into, but the bees have made a nest in the body and have made some honey. So he goes over and he gets some honey from the lion carcass, uh, bee's nest, and eats it and it tastes good. Okay. So he takes some more and he takes it home and he gives it to his parents and they eat it and they say that it tastes good too. And again, it very clearly says that he does not tell his parents about the lion. Still, he brings home the honey. He doesn't tell them, like, why? Why is he not telling his parents about this? Here's the first issue with Samson. He can't admit his mistakes at all. He is all authority, zero vulnerability. Completely can't do it. If you remember number six, a Nazarite is not supposed to go near a dead body. This carcass counts. It would fit the description of a dead body. If they do go near a dead body, which could happen, somebody could die and you could be standing. Like, things happen. There was an entire write-up on what to go through to recommit yourself to the vow. It says that you need to shave your head, isolate for eight days, make a series of sacrifices to God, rededicate yourselves to God. Basically sounds like when you have COVID. You know, it's like the same thing. Um, And so Samson does none of this. Like, none of it at all. He just keeps going along on his path and doesn't acknowledge it. Friends, real strength is found in admitting your mistakes and learning from them. I'm reading this really good book called Managing Leadership Anxiety by Steve Cuss. And in it, he says, if leadership is knowing what to do, then leadership is also making mistakes. All leaders make mistakes, and we have anxiety about how we respond to making a mistake. Let's think about this for us. How hard is it for you to admit a mistake when you've made one? We'll go small. Say, um, I'm in a rush. I had some emails that I have to send out. I'm not paying particularly close attention to the address e-line, which is not always a good thing when you're shooting out emails. Um, and so I'm sending out some stuff that I think is going to my wife, Sarah, co-lead pastor. That's not like super private, but it's probably not stuff I went on blast type it all out, shoot it. An hour later, something clicks. Hmm, I'm not sure I sent that to the right person. And I look, and instead of sending it to my wife, Sarah, I sent it to Sarah Billings, who's one of our board members. And in that moment, what's going through my head? What's my internal dialogue when I realize that mistake? How likely am I to make the situation worse by either over or under dealing with the situation. How about something slightly bigger? I make a parenting or a, uh, uh, a marriage-based mistake in uh, a conversation, and I get overheated, and I say something I wouldn't want somebody saying back to me. Uh, and once I cool down, I realize, and I feel shame over it. In that moment, what's going on internally? What's my internal dialogue? How likely, again, am I to either over or under react? And let me add another one. How likely am I to try and pretend like it never happens? You can put yourself in probably both of those situations pretty easily. 
We all have these things happen. Mistakes happen. And yes, they do have consequences. But as followers of Jesus, we can't let ourselves be controlled by a fear of consequences. We have to be willing to deal with the stuff. That's how we deal with it in a healthy way. Samson is a chronic hider avoider. Every single thing that he does that's not good, he shoves it under a rock, avoids, doesn't deal with it in the proper way, doesn't talk to anybody about it, just pushes it away so he never has to let it see the light of day. Hypothetically, hypothetically, I'll say it that way, he was hiding his drinking. And so hypothetically, he's hiding his drinking, which means that he had to hide killing a lion with his bare hands so that he could continue to hide his drinking. That's a problem. That's a cycle that needs to be broken, and he's not willing to do it. And the thing is, is that people broke this vow. It happened all the time. That's why there's a list of ways to recommit yourself. God does not expect us to live perfect lives. He gives us ways to be reconciled, to live better. He gives us steps. But Samson wasn't willing to deal with the consequences. So he kept shoving it under a rock, pushing it away for another day that he knew hopefully would never come. For us to be strong, we have to be willing to deal with our mistakes in healthy ways. We can do that in a few ways. The first is that we have to forgive ourselves for making the mistake. If you can't forgive yourself, you won't be able to get over it. That's just pretty much the reality. You have to be able to deal with that. The second thing is you have to give time necessary amounts of time to deal with it. And that could be five minutes. For most of the mistakes we make, it's a five-minute thing. Sometimes things are bigger, and it's a week's worth of hours. Whatever it is, be willing to give it time and go into it with humility. And the last thing is we need to create spaces to hear critical evaluation from someone you trust without defensiveness. Now, that may sound a little clinical, so I'll say it this way. Uh, you need to have people in your life that you trust, that you can say, hey, I did this. Give me some feedback. And when they give you feedback, you have to be willing to say, okay, I'm not going to get defensive. And say, okay, Jesus, where are you in the midst of this? Don Wilson wrote, leaders don't learn from experience. They learn from evaluated experience. And in all of this, we need to be inviting Jesus in. Samson does none of these things. But if we want to deal with mistakes well in healthy ways, we need it to be in the light of Jesus, and then we can start to grow. That's how we can deal with our mistakes in a better way than Samson does. But again, he keeps shoving things down and doesn't deal with what it is that's popping up. He rules Israel for 20 years as a judge. That's a fairly long time to be in charge of a large group of people. And he never deals with his issue. They tell us all of his bad stuff. They would have told us his good stuff too. That means that it wasn't there. He never dealt with anything. And in Judges 16, we're told that Samson falls for the third woman in the story. He fell for the girl from Timnah. That didn't work out. He fell for a prostitute. That wasn't going to work out. And then he falls for Delilah, the third Philistine woman that he shouldn't have been in a relationship with. And the rulers of the Philistines find out about Delilah. And so they go to her and they say, hey, Delilah, 
we will pay you a boatload of money. Literally, it, was, it would have weighed a lot, the amount that they were offering to her. If you'll figure out what Samson's strength comes from. And she says, okay. And so then this cat and mouse game begins of terrible relational, unhealthy relational dynamics between Samson and Delilah. And she goes up to him. She's like, Samson, where do you get your strength from? And he goes, oh, this is where it is. If you tie me up in brand new bowstrings, like who come, like come on, Samson, come up with a better lie at least than that. Like tie me up in brand new bowstrings, I'll lose my strength. So he takes a nap and she ties him up in brand new bowstrings. And then she goes in the other room, Samson, Samson, they're here to get you. And he jumps up and rips them clean and runs out still just as strong as 20 minutes ago. Obviously, that's not it. So she goes over to him again. Samson, where do you get your strength from? Well, if you tie me up in brand new ropes, that'll be the thing. That's where I get, that, that breaks my strength. So he takes another nap and she ties him in brand new ropes. And she goes into another room. Samson, Samson, come, they're here to get you. And he jumps up and he rips it clean. Still just as strong as he was before. You can tell by this point there's probably some issues in their communication that's beginning to build, but neither one of them are really fully willing to, to deal with the issue that's there. Um, and so she goes up again, and she's like, Samson, come on, where do you get your strength from? Tell me, please. He goes, okay. If you take my beautiful long hair and you weave it into a loom with some fabric, then I will lose my strength. So he takes another nap, which is like, dude, find a different couch to sleep on. Like, seriously, why? Why do you keep doing this? So he falls asleep, and she again, like, weaves his, she weaves his hair into the loom, and then she goes into the other room. Samson, Samson, they're here to come and get you. And she, he jumps up, rips his hair, which that had to have hurt a little bit, rips his hair out of this loom, still just as strong as before. So finally, she goes, don't you trust me? No, I don't. You just tried to get me three times. Like, no, I don't. But what we're told is that at that point, Samson got tired of her nagging. And so he gave in. Rather than running away and saying, this is an unhealthy relationship that I should not be in, he gets tired of her nagging and tells her the truth. And he says, if I lose my hair then all of my strength will be gone. So he takes a nap again, which is like, I mean, did they have Robitussin back in the day? Like, how is she knocking him out this hard? So takes a nap, and then she cuts all of his hair, uh, and she goes into the other room, and she knew that this time that it was different, that something was more real. And so she called the guys who were paying her, and she said, come on over, it's time. She goes in, she yells, Samson, Samson, they're here to get you. And he jumps up, nothing, it's all gone. And they tackle him, they gouge his eyes out. I mean, it's a brutal scene. Uh, they tie him up, they take him to prison where he spends the rest of his days. Everything gone. You know, usually we say that uh, the hair, we kind of go along with what Samson's theory was. I actually think that that's not true at all. I think the hair to hold all the streaks sound, sounds a little bit more like uh, fantasy, 
uh, than, than, than truth. I think the hair was the last straw. I think Samson lost his strength because he kept ignoring his vow to God. I think that's what the real issue was with Samson. He touched a dead, he ate honey from a dead body without acknowledging it or going through the process of recommitment. He keeps going to close to vineyards and at least eating grape skins on repeat. He's in a lot, a lot of parties with the Philistines and he's not acknowledging any of these patterns around grapes or dealing with anything. He goes and he has relationships with three women that he should not have had, a prostitute and two women who he's not married to, who he knows he shouldn't have been in a relationship with as the leader over Israel without ever acknowledging anything. Nothing. No, no, no repentance. Nothing. No sacrifices. No admission of sin. And I think finally what happened when his hair got cut off, I think it was that God said, fine, that's it. You want to throw it away, it's gone. And in verse 20, it says that. It says that he didn't realize that the Lord had left him. The saddest thing about this entire terrible story where he did not pay any attention to what was going on I think is that Samson really did trick himself into believing that his hair was the source of his strength because he had gotten so cold to the reality of God's presence that he didn't even know that God was there and so when God left didn't matter because he hadn't been looking to him in a long long time his hair it was just one of the things. He had stopped recognizing the presence of God. Friends, real strength is found in dealing with your issues. Samson never did. He didn't deal with any of them. He just kept burying them deeper and deeper. We become stronger when we acknowledge how weak that we are. That's what Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians. And in times of weakness, we as followers of Jesus we tend to lean into two different things and start to either rely on them or see our worldview through them. And one of them is idols and the other is inner vows. So an idol, Tim Keller defines it as any good thing that you make into an ultimate thing. It could be a physical object, uh, which is what it was historically, right? Uh, you know, a statue that you make sacrifices to, that you burn incense and candles to, uh, that you pray to, uh, that you create a shrine for. Some of that still happens today. Today, though, an idol is something in our hearts that we need in order to be okay. Something that you need in order to be okay. Again, loads of things that that could be. You know, it could be money. That could be what you need in order to be okay. It could be the approval of somebody else, a parent, a child, uh, a spouse, uh, your manager. I don't know. It could be a lot of different people. Uh, it, it could be that you need to be right or that you need to be liked. Maybe it's that you need people to think that your life is perfect. Maybe you need a drink when you get home or before you go to bed in order to feel okay. Maybe it's sex or pornography. Maybe it's a certain number of likes on Instagram. I don't know. There's lots of options of what it could be. 
But what is it in our lives that we need in order to be okay? If it's anything other than Jesus, and honestly, like we all have these, at very least from time to time, if not regularly, that we're struggling with and that we need to keep going to Jesus with. This is a normal part of being human and of choosing to follow Jesus. So we have to keep giving these things up to him and choosing to live a different way. But what is it that we need to give up so that we can have Jesus be the one that leads us? The good news is that Jesus, again, he's not surprised by this. You know, like he gave Samson or the Nazarites uh, a, a pathway towards reconciliation. He gives us a pathway towards reconciliation too. Uh, Galatians 5.1 says, So Christ has truly set us free. Now make sure that you stay free and you don't get tied up again in slavery. Jesus came and he died on the cross so that you would have total freedom over any idols that you had in your life. He rose from the dead so that he could bring total and complete freedom to our lives in every single way. He has brought us all that we need. Don't remain attached to something that Jesus came to bring you freedom from. Allow him to give you the gift that he came to bring. Total and complete freedom from all other things that want to tie themselves and attach themselves to you. So let's talk about inner vows for, for a second here. An inner vow, uh, very simplistic definition, but it's a vow that we often make as kids that becomes the filter through which we see all of life. Uh, they're never good. Uh, again, from Managing Leadership Anxiety, it says, vows put our past in our future, keeping us in bondage to them. When we experience pain in our early years, trust was, rapture, was ruptured and forgiveness withheld. Out of that pain, we make vows about how we're going to be. These vows become obstacles and strongholds. And uncovering our wounds and unmet needs and allowing God to bring healing to those places accelerates our growth. Out of that pain, we make vows about how we're going to be. I'll share with you, too, that I've seen enough freedom over that I'm willing to acknowledge it from the the platform. How about that? Uh, there's probably others that I'm not at that spot yet. But for me, there's been two intervals that I've been aware of for a while. And one is that I need to be prepared for something bad to happen at any time. And two is that God's good, but his goodness isn't trustworthy. It's not reliable. And I've struggled with those uh, quite a bit uh, and haven't, hadn't seen total freedom over them until uh, a little bit more recently. Um, so last year I was working with a Christian counselor. And let me just say, like, in dealing with stuff like this, it's really good to be doing it with somebody who's a trusted professional who knows what they're doing so they can guide you through uh, this process. So just, just to put that out there. Um, but I, I was meeting with her, and I mentioned to her that uh, when I was nine months old that my mom died when I was at home. And it was just her and I that, that were at home. Uh, and uh, she said, you know, maybe we should pray about that, um, which was a good, a good prayer flag to throw. And uh, so we, the next time that we met, we, we spent the whole time uh, focused on that and doing some inner healing. And so she asked me to visualize the scene as much as I could from what I knew, 
which I was nine months old. I don't remember it. I'll say that. Uh, but um, I've been told plenty about it. So I can picture some things in my mind. Uh, I knew that my mom, I was in my crib in my room and my mom was getting uh, a bath ready for me. She was in the bathroom. She had a heart attack, um, collapsed. She died instantly. Uh, My dad wasn't quite home yet. And so he got home within a short amount of time. Um, And when he got home, uh, he hears the water running, like probably hears me crying. And so he runs in, sees what's going on, is calling 911. It's chaos at that point, right? Just complete and total chaos. Uh, My dad's trying to deal with everything that's coming at him, uh, all the while trying to manage, you know, his own, like, sudden shock uh, in those moments. And so I'm picturing this. And she says to ask Jesus where he was during this time. And so I did. And I saw kind of a, a layout. I don't know if it was the exact layout of the house. It kind of doesn't matter. Uh, but my room and then the bathroom was like across the hall. And I saw Jesus in the middle of the two. And his arms did this stretch arm strong thing, uh, if you remember what that is. And one hand was grabbing hold of mine, and the other hand was grabbing hold of my dad. And he was there in the middle of both of us, in that space, when we were both losing and life was just blew up in a crazy intense way that was going to define a lot of things for a lot of years and he was holding our hands and he was there and when I saw that picture both of those two things got broken in that moment because I realized that God was good and that I could trust it because he was actually there even at my one of my most raw and like uh, uncontrolled moments of my life. And then the other part about being prepared for something bad to happen. So the reason I was actually meeting with her was because I kept having these, what I came to figure out were like fight, uh, fight or flight moments when I would wake up in the middle of the night as an adult. And I was like, this is weird. Uh, and so we were working on it and I realized So what would happen is I would be woken up by something, anything. It could be like a car driving by outside. It doesn't have to be anything inside. And my heart would pound for a long time, like intense. And I'd have to get up and go check everything to make sure that it was okay. And like figure out that everybody was okay. Um, And then it would still take me one to two hours to fall back asleep after that moment because my adrenaline was so high. And so I realized that it was a kind of fight or flight thing that kept getting tripped whenever I was sleeping in a bed, which would make sense for a baby who had a parent die when I was in my crib and then everything went crazy. The moment I woke up, nothing was ever the same again. And so when I saw that picture of Jesus being there with me, all of a sudden that broke off of me too. And I was able to see God was there. He was taking care of me. And I could rest in that strength. In my moment of weakness, he was strong. And I could trust in his goodness in that spot. And truly, I, my, I still have sleep issues sometimes. But I haven't had the like wake up, heart pounding, can't sleep for multiple hours 
feel the need to figure out what's going wrong thing. And honestly, that was a pretty regular part of my life since then. Jesus can do crazy things if we give him space to work all the way down. He can bring healing in ways that are shocking to us and that change us deeply. Dealing with stuff takes time. It takes intentionality. It requires us to dig. But being free is worth it. Strength comes when we deal with our stuff. Samson never dealt with this stuff, and it kept showing up over and over and over again. Like every single time, the same things kept showing up because he never dealt with it. He kept breaking his vow, touching dead bodies, drinking wine, whatever it was, and not admitting it, not working towards reconciliation. And it destroyed him. The rest of his life, he lived as a prisoner. We're told that later that they took him into one of the temples to mock him, to make fun of him. 3,000 people are there. And they lean him against some pillars. And he puts his hand on both pillars and he prays. And his prayer is, so the temple does fall. I'll, I'll fully admit that that does happen and they all die. But the reason, I think God used that moment to do what he wanted to do, not because Samson prayed the right prayer. Because Samson puts his hand and he says, God, will you give me the strength to do it one last time? To prove to these people who are mocking me, who are making fun of me, who have destroyed my life, who's more powerful? And I think at that moment what he meant was him, not God. And he, put, and he says, and then kill me. Let me die too. He pushes, collapses, and he dies. He wanted to be strong for all the wrong reasons. Friends, strength from Jesus is not self-seeking. It's not avoiding and self-protecting. It's not self-pitying. Strength from Jesus is found in the place where authority and vulnerability intersect and lead to a place of relying on Jesus and being honest with yourself about your weakness and what it is that's going on. So how do we move towards this? We admit our mistakes and we work on it. We learn from them. We deal with the stuff that's underneath, the stuff that we don't usually want to deal with, but we keep digging to find freedom. And we allow our weakness to be a place of God's strength. Are you willing to allow your weakness to be the spot that God becomes strong in, in your life? If we do this, Isaiah 40, 31 says this will happen. Those who trust in the Lord will find new strength. They'll soar high on wings like eagles. They'll run and not grow weary. They'll walk and not faint. Strength to keep going when you're tired and thirsty, higher than you thought that you were going to be able to go on your own. Strength that's not based on your ability, but is based on the strength of Jesus. And that's still there even when you feel emptied out. That's the sort of strength that leads to flourishing. Worship team, come on up. What I want to do is I want to pray for us for Jesus to bring his strength. We're going to do prayer time in a little bit where I'm going to throw some of these things out for us to respond to. But I just want to pray for us right here and right now for the presence of Jesus to come and for us to be able to be aware of his strength in the midst of whatever weakness that we're feeling right here in this place. So let's pray.
Jesus, I thank you that you promise strength in the places where we feel the most vulnerable, where we feel the most empty. And that you reward our willingness to dig and to deal with your presence. And so, Holy Spirit, I just pray right now that you will come and fill us with your strength. Wherever it is that we feel weak, whatever situation, maybe in your heart, whatever relationship or situation that that is, whatever idol it is, whatever the thing is that you know, like this is where I'm the most weak. In the midst of that spot, we ask for your strength. Not that we muscle up and figure it out, but that you come and bring total and complete healing, reconciliation, and life. Thank you for your presence. We just ask for it to be clear to us. Fill us right now, Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Mm-hmm.